Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations on timely topics with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. And what could be more timely than panics and pandemics? My guest has spent years researching the causes and complexities of financial crises. Bob Bruner is Distinguished Professor of Business Administration and Dean Emeritus of UVA Darden School of Business. He is also co-author of The Panic of 1907, Lessons Learned from the Market's Perfect Storm, and he's a member of the CFA Institute Board of Governors. Now, a quick note before we get started. This is our first Take 15 on the go, recorded from home, and we're still working on the audio quality. Now on to the show. I hope you enjoy this very timely conversation. Bob Bruner, welcome. Uh, we're meeting virtually today for a conversation on the myths and realities of financial crises in what can only be described as extraordinary times. Uh, as listeners well know, the COVID viral disease has been declared a pandemic and global financial markets have whipsawed on a daily basis. Uh, one headline I saw put it really well. It said the longest bull market in history has ended in pandemic panic. So perhaps panic is a good place to start. Uh, that's not normally how I would start a conversation, but these are really unusual times. So you have written uh, or co-authored a number of books, and I'm especially interested in The Panic of 1907. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with the book, it details the fear that gripped the market during one of the, the worst banking panics in U.S. history. Dozens of banks and trust companies failed. So can you give the audience some context today? How bad was the panic of 1907 and how does it compare to what we're seeing today? Well, thank you very much, Lauren. It's very nice to be with you today and uh, all of your listeners. The Panic of 1907 was one of the worst crises in U.S. economic history. Um, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their magisterial uh, monetary history of the United States uh, reckoned it as one of the worst, as among the worst. Um, it came on suddenly. It uh, uh, threatened the stability of numerous financial institutions in New York City, the, 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 the money center of the United States, as well as elsewhere, it threatened uh, the stability of uh, industrial corporations. Unemployment rose sharply, uh, GDP fell uh, sharply, but it was a V-shaped uh, uh, crisis. The, the actual episode of financial instability was relatively brief, although what I uh, and my co-author Sean Carr, a uh, document in the book is that the actual cycle from the downturn to the, the nadir of the crisis and then eventually through to recovery was a matter of uh, years, three years perhaps by one reckoning. In short, um, it was uh, uh, an extraordinarily difficult time and it stands out in economic history because it was the straw that broke the camel's back. There was enormous resistance within the United States throughout the 18th and 19th centuries to the idea of forming a central bank. The fear among 
luminaries such as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison was that the central bank would uh, perhaps become the tool of monarchists and lead to the creation of a, uh, a dictatorship, a, a national power that would overwhelm the power of the states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Andrew Jackson uh, was similarly opposed uh, other other politicians. But in any event, the crisis triggered a uh, dramatic rethinking of what was best for the country. And by 1907, the economy of the United States was so so vibrant, so complicated, and the financial sector growing so rapidly that it became apparent to almost everyone that some centralized uh, uh, guardian over the system would be better than a uh, an informal uh, guardian such as J.P. Morgan, who emerges in the book as the uh, the leader of the moment uh, to to take charge and to mobilize collective action to save numerous financial institutions. I'll just pause there. It, it's a it's a gripping story in its own right, but mm. in its economics, it's um, also uh, quite uh, complicated. How does it compare to what you we are starting to see today? It is. Um, uh, what was it Tolstoy said about families at the start of Anna Karenina? He says. All happy families uh, are alike, all unhappy families are different. And uh, so all financial crises are different. <laughs> there, there are some regularities among them, but uh, the crisis of 1907 differs from today in numerous ways. Uh, certainly today, today's crisis represents an extraordinarily brief elapsed time between the economic shock and the onset of financial threat, financial sector instability. Mm -hmm. In 1907, it uh, took about a year and a half for that cycle to occur. Wow. Second, uh, the US government in 1907 was rather passive, whereas today it is the, the prime mover, at least as regards the US uh, economy and the financial system. And in uh, 1907, a private actor, J.P. Morgan, led the, the effort to mobilize the response to the crisis, whereas today it would be uh, Jerome Powell or others, um, uh, certainly authorities in China, authorities in Europe uh, are, are showing the kind of initiative that we all have hoped they would. Great. So you've spent your career studying the causes and complexities of financial crises. Have you seen anything like this before, whether in textbooks, obviously, because not in reality, but is there anything that comes close to what we are seeing today, historically? Uh, this crisis already, we can say, stands out on uh, at least three dimensions. We have not seen anything as uh, virulent, that is to say, as sudden, as, um, as dramatic in its uh, uh, impact. Second, we haven't seen anything quite as global Indeed, it was true that in 2008, the crisis of the day uh, was characterized subsequently as a, as a North Atlantic financial crisis rather than a, a global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And finally, we haven't seen anything as lethal. So there's been a lot of headlines about the horrors of 1918 and what the Spanish flu can teach us about COVID-19. 
So I understand you're teaching a class at Darden and just recently covered the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. Walk us through what was the impacts on the economy and markets and is there a relevant comparison to the current pandemic? Uh, so the, the uh, Spanish flu uh, from 1918 to late 1919 uh, uh, was worldwide in its scope. It was spread in large part by <clears throat> returning soldiers uh, from uh, the conflict in, uh, of World War I. Uh, and it uh, was an especially uh, a damaging uh, viral strain uh, that threatened uh, not merely days out of work, but uh, uh, life. The consequence was that um, it, it uh, uh, killed millions of people, uh, estimated uh, 50 million, some estimates put it at 100 million worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, that had to have had a major impact on uh, uh, the global uh, economic output. Unfortunately, 1920 was a period of time before the, the aggregation, the collection and curation of uh, economic data in, in any fine detail. So there's really not much we can say about the economic impact of the flu. But um, it was clearly uh, as global as it appears today's uh, viral strain is uh, approaching. And second, it no doubt uh, was uh, quite depressing to the economy. It's worth pointing out that the, the US during this period of the Spanish flu is experiencing a, a wave of inflation, post-war inflation owing to the federal government spending and the enlargement of money supply during and shortly after the war. Uh, also, there was a, a, an explosion in consumer spending immediately after the armistice in November 1918. So it's very difficult to separate um, these, these uh, very significant factors from one another for us to be able to isolate exactly what the impact of the flu was. But it has to have been uh, depressing on the, the economic performance of the United States and other countries. So in 2009, the Research Foundation produced a book on the 2008 global financial crisis, and you contributed an outstanding chapter to that book, The Dynamics of a Financial Dislocation, The Panic of 1907, and the Subprime Crisis. So expanding a little bit on my, my previous question, uh, are there historical parallels from other crises, such as the 1907 panic, uh, that we can draw on today? Uh, there, there are numerous parallels, and so this course that you alluded to uh, is, is an elective course in our MBA program at the Darden School, and we uh, take the students through 28 financial crises in history, and uh, I, I tell the students that the challenge is uh, for them to connect the dots, uh, much about understanding financial crises is a task of pattern recognition, which equity analysts and, and uh, portfolio managers will recognize as a core skill of their, their own uh, skill set. But the, the, the parallels among the crises uh, boil down to a, a, a few that I'll highlight. One is 
that we see repeatedly in crises that they they begin with a shock of some kind and the shock matters because the shock typically follows from a period of buoyancy of economic expansion and it is the very expansion that tends to stretch the capacities of the financial system um, corporations and individuals borrow more during the buoyant period uh, because they're, they're they, they grow in their optimism and perhaps market speculation grows uh, corporations begin to invest uh, with with a view toward farther and farther out into the future they make longer term capital investments and all of this builds up and and this is uh, generally a good thing we want uh, economies to expand and increase mm -hmm. and, and uh, individuals to experience rising sense of welfare but um, this tends to stretch the financial system so banks lend more against a fixed uh, capital base. They um, perhaps engage in, in loans to riskier uh, debtors, uh, et cetera. And uh, as the saying goes, the chain is only as strong as its uh, weakest or most vulnerable link. And then comes an economic shock of some kind <clears throat> that breaks the link and the, the chain fails and the system threatens to tumble. Um, what follows is a period of uh, very, very rapid retrenchment. Banks call in loans, uh, depositors run on banks, repo lenders run on repo borrowers, uh, as we saw in 2008, and uh, everybody hoards cash. They stuff it under the mattress, uh, under the hearthstone, whatever the metaphor is. And the, the consequence is the, the financial system experiences a liquidity crunch. Uh, it's not possible to borrow even uh, for the most creditworthy uh, uh, borrowers in the field. Eventually, uh, and, and therefore the real economy contracts quite sharply, eventually uh, in a process of debt and deflation uh, uh, ensues. Uh, Borrowers have to throw assets on the market in fire sales, prices plummet. This forces borrowers to throw more assets on the market, prices plummet further. And the plummeting ultimately stops when, we, when the economy runs out of assets to sell and when confidence returns. Eventually, confidence returns and the economic cycle begins, but typically the crisis and the, the bust stimulate a civic reaction. And um, this is not well documented in books and literature on uh, crises, but it's what I'm working on these days. <clears throat> you, can, you can think of the civic reaction to financial crises in numerous dimensions. Electoral results, typically political parties in power tend to get thrown out of office. Presidents, unfortunately, tend to be ejected. Um, we, we have the rise of new political parties. We have the rise of protest movements. Think of Occupy Wall Street and, and uh, the Tea Party. You could even say that uh, Black Lives Matter and perhaps uh, the Me Too movement are very, very uh, distant relatives of the, the wave of protest that the crisis of 2008 engendered. Uh, in any event, uh, new ideologies tend to emerge. Uh, and this tends to set the stage for the next generation, perhaps, of 
political thought and uh, position taking. Um, we can we can talk about this at great length. I don't want to monopolize yes, the yes. interview about this, but the my general idea is to think in terms of crises as a as a um, as an economic and a, a political or a civic dynamic, a cycle that is almost unavoidable. I can point to it again and again and again in crises, and it uh, the epicenter t- tends to be the shock, which is what we remember, but often without remembering the boom or the bust or the civic reaction. It's really fascinating uh, stuff. I know we're very early on in this financial crisis, but people are already sort of wondering how will we, will we identify signs of you know, recovery in the economy and markets following crises? And how does this dif- differ depending on the crisis? Well, I think there are three hallmarks of, the, of an incipient recovery. One is uh, a, a return to liquidity in markets, particularly credit markets. In 2008 and today, <clears throat> this return to liquidity is being force-fed by the, the federal government here in the United States, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Bank, specifically in the U.S. Treasury, certainly the European Central Bank and uh, the central banks of other countries. They are actively intervening in markets to ensure liquidity, but plainly specialized segments of the capital markets worldwide are experiencing a drought. Uh, uh, We've already witnessed a a dramatic exodus of of, uh, foreign uh, portfolio uh, investments in emerging economies in the past six weeks or so. We don't know the impact yet of that exodus and um, how those uh, emerging economies will fare. Uh, specialized sectors of the developed economy, financial markets are no doubt experiencing a drought. We can think of venture capital, perhaps private equity, uh, real estate investing. Uh, all of this is being put on hold until the the turmoil fades. At any rate, number one is the the a return to the liquidity of uh, capital markets. The second that I would uh, cite is the end of hoarding. Um, Everybody's hoarding. I'm willing to bet that many people within the sound of this uh, broadcast have uh, politely reallocated their portfolios. That's a polite way to say it. Of uh, some securities and into cash. And um, uh, when, when people begin to take their wealth back out of cash and back into um, uh, risk assets of various kinds, uh, that will be the second great hallmark of the beginning of recovery. And of course, the third hallmark, which is less uh, immediately measurable, but may be of the greatest impact, would be a turn in sentiment, an improvement in sentiment. Um, Robert Schiller of Yale University has written a great book called Narrative Economics which I commend, and in it he, he argues that uh, the stories we tell about our lives and our communities and, uh, of course, the, the economic environment tend to create a self-fulfilling prophecy, and the, the stories uh, become indicators of public and economic sentiment. And the stories we tell in the depths of a crisis, if you read 
the, the newspapers associated with any of the, of the epicenter of any of the crises in history um, will be uh, uh, loaded with negative, bitter stories, uh, threats, worries of all kinds. When, when, when those narratives begin to change for the better, we have um, um, the, the incipient uh, turnaround. So, Bob, I know you've done a, a lot of work on separating facts from fiction when it comes to financial crises. Could you perhaps walk us through some of the myths versus realities and the implications for financial professionals? Now, I know that there are, there are a number of myths, and perhaps you'd like to just focus on one or two to share with the listeners today. I think it's very important today to understand that um, um, the, 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 the conventional myth and the, the reality that uh, about the duration of a crisis. So the, the conventional view of a crisis is that it, it begins when headlines start appearing in newspapers and it ends when the news of crisis-related events recede to the back pages or the second, second section or the, the, the footnotes uh, and, and that, that that moment of prominence of a financial crisis tends to be quite brief, um, blessedly brief. Uh, it, might, it might be a few days or in the case of 2008, about six months or nine months, but in any event, uh, I think a sophisticated view of financial crises considers the, the, the front end, what I'd call the, the front tail of a crisis, as well as the, the back end, the, the ripple effects of the crisis. And I would tell you that the front end and the, the back end are quite long, typically, in, in, on the order of uh, many months or in fact, uh, years. So the crisis, uh, the panic of, 2000, of, of 1907 <laughs> commenced with the San Francisco earthquake of April 13th, 1906, virtually 18 months before the epicenter of the crisis in October 1907. <clears throat> but the, the earthquake in 1906 triggered a host of insurance claims uh, on insurance companies headquartered in New York and London and Paris and Berlin. Uh, it triggered the, the movement of gold uh, to San Francisco to fund the rebuilding of the city and the central banks in London, Paris, and Berlin witnessing the, the outflow of gold from the reserves of their financial system, raised interest rates in an effort to lure gold back, and it uh, created a, a, uh, uh, a money crunch in the United States by late 1906 and early 1907. The US uh, stock market plunged in March 1907 Recession set in. Um, large companies began to find it difficult to finance their their working capital on ongoing operations. New York City nearly defaulted on its uh, uh, debt payments in in August of 1907, and then a speculation uh, on the on the stock market failed in a in a in a spectacular way 
uh, triggering the uh, runs on trust companies and banks in October. JP Morgan stepped in to, to organize a series of dramatic rescues. The, the point being that crises have long tails before and long tails afterwards. And, and the, the point of uh, emphasizing this fact is to encourage analysts to look for precursors uh, that might end in crises, uh, precursors such as shocks and uh, amplifiers that could uh, increase the impact of those shocks, uh, as well as to think about the civic reactions and their consequences in the months and years after the, the shocks. My, I'll, I'll highlight one other myth and uh, I think this is very important as we work through this crisis. Already we're hearing some talk about who's to blame for this crisis and what we should do differently next time. Uh, in 2008, Queen Elizabeth of uh, the United Kingdom famously asked, uh, why, don't, uh, oh, why, why didn't we see it coming? And uh, uh, she was at uh, London University at the time, and, and the, the, the faculty there struggled and uh, apologized. But uh, the reality is uh, crises, by their very nature, are virtually impossible to foresee because they begin with a shock. Shocks, by the way, are defined as costly, unambiguous, and an utter surprise. <laughs> and... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, if that's true, if, if shocks are not forecastable, then it's entirely likely that uh, crises are not forecastable. So I, I don't think crises can be prevented. However, crises can be mitigated. And the, the mitigation arises <clears throat> by creating shock absorbers, if you will, uh, in, in financial systems as well as in operational systems that... Uh, uh, enable an economy to respond with greater resilience to a, a, a crisis of some kind. Today, a, an obvious uh, absent shock absorber would be excess bed capacity in hospitals, which is what, uh, and, and ventilators and uh, protective garments for hospital workers and the like. Um, when times are good, when, when in the absence of a crisis, it, it may be difficult to justify the expense of holding this excess capacity in reserve. But now when we really need it, we wish we had it. So do you think financial crises occur more often than most U.S. investors realize? Um, this is uh, one of the other very important myths of financial crises namely that uh, crises are rare, uh, quite rare events. Uh, the notion of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, uh, black swans, that mm -hmm. they're very, very low probability, but high impact events. Uh, in reality, the, the IMF has kept track of uh, three kinds of crises, banking panics, currency crises, and debt crises, particularly sovereign debt crises. And their evidence uh, shows that <clears throat> crises are virtually an annual event. They are occurring somewhere in the world uh, almost all the time. An example would be 
Argentina in, <clears throat> in 2001 that experienced the currency crisis and morphed into a debt and banking crisis. <clears throat> um, we worry about, um, you know, we, we, we remember Mexico in 1995 that had a, <clears throat> a uh, currency and debt crisis, the, the so-called uh, uh, tequila crisis. There was the, the Asian flu in 1998. Um, you, you can stitch these together into a, a drumbeat <clears throat> of crises. But that's why we have the IMF. That's why we have the, uh, so the central, central uh, banks of the developed economies that afford the capacity to step in. So not long ago, although it feels like a long time ago at this point in 2018, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis. And at the time, you wrote an op-ed that was headlined, The Financial Crisis, Why Remember? And I'd like to revisit something you said in your piece. And I'm going to quote uh, from your article. Why should we pause this weekend and reflect on the financial crisis of 2008? My reply is that the crisis was a teachable moment upon which our collective wisdom depends. Memories are short. And you went on to say, such wisdom begins from a recognition of at least three attributes of crises, great damage, <clears throat> recurrence, and complexity. This is a hard question to answer, but I guess when we look back on the pandemic crisis of 2020, what do you think will be the teachable moment or teachable moments? That's an excellent question. And I think uh, it's, it's always dangerous to, to derive uh, conclusions this early in the cycle of a crisis. But I'll go out on a limb and say that on the basis of what we've seen so far, far one of the preeminent uh, features of this crisis is the propagation of the, the economic damage <clears throat> through the global uh, real economy, uh, particularly the supply chains emanating out of China during the episode of China's uh, lockdown and then followed by the lockdown in the United States and uh, Europe and, and other regions. This is evidence uh, that uh, global networks are powerful. They are powerful in ways that um, very few of us uh, may have understood entirely and that um, very sophisticated, uh, foresightful analysis of the global economy and its variation through time will henceforth necessarily depend on a, on a careful study of the functionality of the supply chains and the propagation of, of um, economic turbulence through those chains. Uh, again, this reemphasizes the importance of shock absorbers in systems that are highly complex and tightly connected. Um, I think uh, globalization creates this, uh, this very deep network of connection that um, will become the grist for many, many business school cases. Yes, <laughs> it'll keep business school uh, professors employed for a long time. <laughs> Uh, any thoughts on behavioral economics and the application to today's uh, crisis? I think uh, this, uh, we, this crisis illustrates some uh, recurrent uh, features of behavioral economics, um, hurting the, the tendency of 
less uh, well-informed investors to try to mimic the actions of investors whom they believe to be better informed. Uh, this, this produces stampedes. Um, certainly it illustrates the impact of overshooting, uh, the cognitive bias uh, that might be called uh, recent, recency bias or reference bias, namely looking back at the, the experience of the past few trading periods and saying, well, the future is going to be a lot like the past and therefore um, taking actions right now based on the, the recent trends. Um, this, this, this is an extremely well-documented phenomenon in finance. We see it in currency markets and uh, uh, credit and equity markets, but, uh, uh, and, it, and it's what contributes to the momentum on uh, during booms and the momentum during crashes. What a crash we've seen here this spring. And a lot of this we know is uh, enhanced by algorithmic trading. And uh, in, in some sense, one might argue, well, computers don't have cognitive biases, but in fact they do. And they can be programmed as such to exploit what uh, the, the uh, program developers believe are the cognitive biases of other traders. But um, those, are, those are two examples. I think every, every crisis illustrates uh, the, the fact that um, on average and over time, financial markets may be assumed to be rational. And yet there are episodes of uh, serious irrationality when uh, fundamental values depart sharply from market prices. Yep. So times of crisis really test the mettle of leaders. And Bob, I know you're an avid reader. And one genre that you are partial to is biographies of US presidents. So I'm, I'm wondering who stands out in your mind as a leader who excelled under enormous pressure? And what lessons can we glean for leading during crises? Um, that's an excellent, uh, an excellent question. Uh, in, in their book on the monetary history of the United States, uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz uh, point repeatedly to failures of leadership uh, within the central bank or the U.S. Treasury or other, other significant institutions in the U.S. And it's curious because in our training in finance, we... It's easy to discount the impact of leadership. And yet, through my studies in finance, I'm a financial economist by training. I've grown to appreciate the singular impact of an individual who can intervene and mobilize collective action to fashion a rescue. Uh, J.P. Morgan in 1907 is an example of a private individual, but um, uh, you asked about presidents, and I would uh, point to numerous presidents who were presidents during financial crises, among them uh, Abraham Lincoln. George Washington actually uh, was the, the first president and uh, led the country out of what was arguably uh, the, the first Great Depression of the United States and into a period of stability. But among them all, Franklin D. Roosevelt, 
stands out as a president who was elected in November 1932 at the depths of the Great Depression, inaugurated in uh, March 1933. And he demonstrated both uh, strengths as well as some weaknesses. And I would highlight both <clears throat> or for all of us to reflect upon. His strengths were that he personally owned the crisis. He said, yes, this is on my watch and I'm going to do something about it. And uh, he committed uh, to doing whatever it takes, which uh, as uh, Mario Draghi in 2013, the European Central Bank and in effect Jerome Powell uh, here this spring in, in the Fed have said the same, but it, it's that total and complete commitment to uh, resolve the problem with uh, uh, even extreme uh, uh, resources that uh, uh, confidence is restored. Uh, FDR was an extraordinary communicator, um, very brief messages. His, I encourage uh, listeners to, to go onto YouTube, find his uh, first inaugural address or any of his fireside chats, and um, you, you will see there are models of communication. Um, and uh, plainly, he, he helped restore uh, confidence uh, simply by virtue of his personality, by virtue of the optimism and the insistence that he brought to the job. Uh, it's also true that the crisis gave him an extraordinary opportunity. One study of the U.S. presidents reveals a correlation between the ranking of a president in the eyes of historians and political scientists and uh, the, the uh, concurrence of that presidency with a crisis of some kind. Crises uh, tend to be beneficial to the legacy of a president if, uh, if the president is uh, competent and effective in dealing with the crisis. On the downside, FDR uh, really had no economic uh, training, no economic worldview. He tended to be an, uh, an opportunist, trying one idea after another. Sometimes the ideas worked, sometimes they, they didn't. Uh, as the saying goes, uh, never in doubt, but sometimes right. So FDR barged on and uh, uh, tried uh, numerous things in, in what he called the New Deal, a, a political program, a policy program that he largely abandoned five years later in, at the end of uh, 1938. He turned his attention to the worsening economic, excuse me, international uh, scene uh, and uh, I think historians would agree that it was World War II and the, the extraordinary uh, uh, production demands that dragged the U.S. economy out of depression. Um, I'd also say that FDR was uh, an unusual uh, interpersonal leader, almost Machiavellian, uh, played uh, advisors off against one another. Uh, confused people promising one thing to one person, one thing to another. Uh, I think his, his admirers would say he was very good at, at leading and he did that intentionally to achieve great ends. Uh, his, his detractors, some of whom were the very advisors who worked for him and then subsequently wrote memoirs, his detractors would say, you know, if he had simply been 
consistent in his programs, he could have achieved much more. But in, in the long uh, sweep of history, uh, the, the, the books on balance have been extraordinarily kind uh, and uh, honoring to FDR. And I think we remember him mainly for his ability to galvanize a nation and to, to speak to those most uh, harmed by the onset of the depression uh, to prevent uh, worse things from happening. Uh, the, the rise of extremist uh, political movements, which were starting to occur, the, uh, the, uh, the threat of uh, foreign uh, interventions of various kinds, et cetera. He kept the boat on an even keel, keel which uh, given the severity of the times was an extraordinary accomplishment. Indeed. Bob, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you today. And I really want to thank you for your time and to wish you and your family uh, all the best as you go forward through the coming weeks. Um, and to the audience, I'd just like to invoke a line from uh, Sergeant Esther House, those who watched 80s TV and Hill Street Blues. I'll just say, hey, let's be careful out there. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.